Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, before I dive in today's message, I just want to take a quick moment and just uh, say this to all of you. Yesterday we had our board retreat, and uh, to make a very long story short, at the end of the board retreat, we took some time to pray. And as we were praying, one of the things that really uh, touched my heart, kind of a tear came down my eye, was simply this. Um, I, this is the only church I've pastored, uh, but I feel extremely blessed. And where I'm going with that is to think about, as I looked out essentially at the central leadership of the church, the men and women that are so passionate about bringing Jesus to us, um, I was thankful for that. And then also I kind of recognized in sort of that time that over my tenure here, those faces have changed. You know, people have come um, and they've led and now they're either with the Lord or they're older and they're uh, still doing things. And then I was reminded also of not just the people that are sort of at the core of the leadership, uh, but everybody that is doing something to bring Jesus about in this church, it really warms my heart. So all I wanna say is um, I can't give any other experience, but I feel very blessed to pastor here, and thank you to all of you. It takes all of us to bring Jesus. And so recognize um, one of the things that I really started tearing up about is Oftentimes you hear about this 80-20 rule or you know, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work in the church. I don't know our statistic, but I can tell you I know it's not that 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work around here. We're not perfect. We have ways that we can grow. There are areas that we can be better. Uh, but when I look around and see what goes on at this place, um, it really does bring a tear to my eyes. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your effort to be Jesus to this community. Okay? Thank you so much. With that, we're now going to transition into the message, and what I'd like to do is just continue to start off, for those of you that might be visiting today or newer to this series, why we're doing what we're doing. And so, to make a very long story short, several months ago, I listened to a podcast with a gentleman by the name of Kerry Newhoff, who was interviewing Tom Rayner. Kerry Newhoff is essentially an apostolic pastor. The simplest way to uh, say that is he used to pastor a very large church in Canada. He now essentially is pastoring pastors. Tom Rayner is a gentleman who does essentially research about the church around the world, but particularly in the United States. And so in this interview, they were discussing essentially the stunning decline of evangelism in American churches today. Through their research, what they discovered was when churches were looking at the priority of what they were doing, worship came forward, children's ministry came forward, uh, teaching came forward, all of which is important. I'm not saying that it isn't. But what they discovered was evangelism was like at ground zero. No one was evangelizing. And so in hearing this and in talking about it, Tom Rayner said this quote, which I'll kind of do the best that I can to remember, but he basically said, Satan, Satan's fine, right? If, if we're coming and we're worshiping, that's great. But what Satan doesn't want us to do is depopulate hell. And that hit my, my, my heart, that hit my head. And I started saying to myself, how can we reverse this trend? How can we be a church that goes out and gives the gospel to the world that's around us? We are called to go out and be salt and light to the world. 
long story short, I sat there and I'm like, well, I could preach one sermon on, hey, we all need to go out and be Billy Grahams. Great, one message, there we go. But then I said, if I were to tell you, go out and tell people about Jesus, lovingly, you might sit there and say, okay, I'll do my best, but how? What? I don't feel equipped. People have questions. People are wondering these things. So sure, I'll go and try to tell somebody about Jesus, but you're asking me to do something that I don't feel very solid about. So, God led me to this one-to-one. One-to-one that we're talking about is the sermon series that we're in, but it's also a Bible study that has been written by Dr. Robert Lewis. That's what we're gonna be doing on Wednesday nights. This essentially is an evangelistic, relational discipleship tool that you can have. And the purpose in this is the vision that we are encouraging for our church to really embrace. And it's one-to-one, find your one. What do we mean by that? I want you to look around. Do we see some empty seats? Okay. What if in this year, we all said to ourselves, I'm gonna pray about God putting one person or one family in my life that I could have spiritual conversations with, whether they're maybe just new to their faith or maybe they're not a believer, right? So the first step in this is just to be praying, not asking you guys to go out and be Billy Graham. I'm just asking each of us to say, God, is there one person either in my family at work, maybe my next door neighbor, maybe that annoying kid in my class in math, right? That you are leading me to. Then, maybe it's reaching out to them and saying, hey, I know that you've had some questions about God or about religion or about is there life after death. Would you ever be interested in sitting down with me and going through one-to-one? Now, I'm realistic. I realize that a lot of people are probably going to say thank you, but no thank you. But what if somebody says yes? What if they say, you know what, I've been asking these things and I want to know more about who God is. Then all of a sudden you go, holy cow, they just took me out on that offer. What do I do? You have it right here. And so part of this is to encourage and equip us to be able to do so, but also part of this is, what if a year from now we're looking in our congregation, and there's one person, just one, okay? I'd love to see more, but we'll let the Lord lead. One person who's sitting here and saying, I'm here, now it's all because of God, God is the one who saves, but I'm here because one of you was willing to do one-on-one with them, and by doing one-on-one with them and spending time with them, you were essentially the ambassador for Jesus Christ, and that led them to salvation. I don't know about you, But that gets my heart pounding. And the reason for that is simply this. I've said it before. This is why I'm here. Somebody took a risk and took me through one-to-one a long time ago when I was a partying, beer-drinking frat boy. And this is how God broke my heart and led me to him after all the questions that I had. That's why I'm so passionate about this. So this morning, we are in the second part of essentially a 12-part series of one-to-one. Last week, we were talking about the uniqueness of the Bible. 
This morning we're going to be talking about the uniqueness of the Bible, but we're going to be specifically targeting its authentication. And so with that, I want to take a minute. How many of you have ever gone to the library and had to like reduce sources? You're looking for a specific item. You remember going in? It's a lot easier now than it was when I was in college back in the day. But you would type something in and you're looking and then you'd use a filter and you'd say, okay, well, I'm looking for specific texts that were written between said date and said date and maybe they only come from Germany. And so it would reduce and reduce and reduce. And then finally you'd get a couple of texts. Well, this is what I want to share with you this morning. Go to the largest library in the world. We're all there. Ask the librarian for books that have the following contents. Filter number one, future prophecies. Things that are said that will come true or said to come true in the future. Prophecies clearly documented as made before the events they describe. So essentially, something that has specific evidence to it in the world that this was said before it happened. Because one of the things about prophecy is it's sure easy to say the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl in 2015. It's already happened. But it would be more interesting for me to say the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl next year. Right? That's kind of prophetic. But here's the interesting thing. The NFL exists. The Broncos exist. What if I told you about something that didn't exist at all? And people were like, I don't have no idea what you're talking about. And yet, thousands of years later, it happened exactly as I said today. And it was true. That's what we're talking about in prophecy. So that's kind of the, the second aspect. Now, third, prophecies fulfilled in history outside of the prophet's control, exactly as prophesied. It's a whole thing for me to come to you and say the Denver Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl. It's a whole other thing for you to say that's true, but you also have ties to the commissioner and you're paying him millions of dollars to do that. You're influencing what's going on. What we discover in the Bible is these prophets spoke to things that they had no control over as well as no advantage over. They had no skin in the game. They just said, this is what God has said, and this is what's going to occur. But interestingly enough, not only did they say this is what was said, and this is what was going to occur, but it happened exactly as they said so. And then number four, prophecies that have scientific verification. Okay, some of you are, hey, show it to me, prove it to me. I really want to know. I want science behind this. I want to see the evidence. Those four criteria, what would the librarian return to you with? They could return to you with only one book, and that is the Bible, and that is a true fact. Why is the Bible unique? Brothers and sisters, friends that are out there, we have other religious texts, and a lot of people are asking, hey, I've heard about God, okay, big glob God. Why should I trust or believe that the Bible is the true source of telling me who God is? What about these other texts, and why is the Bible so exclusive? Well, for this very reason, what we begin to discover is the Bible is exclusive simply because it is God's word. But in demonstrating its authenticity, we see the uniqueness of it in a variety of different ways, which is what we're going to speak about today. 
So our question of the day is, compared to other religious texts, why is the Bible so unique? I want to ask a quick question of you. Have any of you ever spoken to someone who is either sort of, I'll call it kicking the tires of Christianity, maybe they're an atheist, maybe they're agnostic, and their question to you is exactly this. Why should I trust the Bible versus other texts out there? Anybody ever have that happen? What's your answer? Uh, I don't know. You just should. Uh, I don't know. My pastor tells me you should. Uh, I don't know. I've never really looked at it myself. Maybe I shouldn't trust it. How can we trust this? Because the other thing that I want to throw out to you is this. For me to get up here every Sunday and tell you I love Jesus, he's Lord of my life, to commit my life to it would be pretty crazy if in the back of my mind I was looking and I'm going, how do I know this stuff is real? How do I have actual evidence to show to me that what I'm telling you isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook, it's actually God's word to us, and God actually exists, and we need a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's what we're speaking to this morning. So, going back, just a little bit of review for you. Also, I'm going to let you guys know... um, If I get really passionate about this, just go with me, okay? Um, I love this stuff, all right? Some of you might kind of be like, yeah, whatever. Just just roll with me, okay? Um, This is what I'm passionate about. This is what my stepping stone or my roadblock was in trusting Christ. And when I began to see the reality of the documentation of the scriptures, that was sort of the dam that broke. And I was like, holy cow, this stuff is really real. Okay, so if I get all excited and energetic, just smile and, you know, say, hey, that's great, et cetera, et cetera. First thing that I want to go back to is last week we recognized that what is unique about the Bible is there is revelation. And revelation is the act of revealing a dramatic disclosure of something not previously known or realized, especially by supernatural means. The point of this is to demonstrate to all of you that what is unique about the Bible is that God is, throughout the scriptures, continually revealing himself to man. I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am, I want you to know my characteristics. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to know why there is sin. I want you to know why I sent Jesus. I want you to know why he went to the cross. I want you to know why you need to believe in him. I want you to know after believing in him who you are and how you should live. And I also want you to know if not believing in him who you are and why you are apart from me. So what's important about this is in other religious texts, at times, there is this idea of there is a God or gods out there. But they really don't want you to know who they are. You have to figure them out. You have to ascend to them. You have to go deep into yourself or outside of your realm to discover, perhaps, a small glimpse of who the little G God is or who the little G gods are. We see that in a variety of religions where individuals will go out on spiritual revelation quests. 
They'll go into sweat houses. They will suffer. They will reduce themselves to something and in this try to find some form of revelation of who little g God is. The difference about the Bible is God says, I'm right here. I'm going to spell it out for you. I want man to know who I am. I want to reveal himself or myself to them. And what's also unique about this is the Bible is God revealing himself to mankind over an extended period of time. Over 2,600 times, God reveals himself to mankind. Some religious texts are one guy had one revelation at one time, and God uniquely spoke to that person. And now that person comes and says, I have all of the truth. The difference of the Bible is God has revealed himself to over 40 different authors over 4,000 or 5,000 years of history of different cultures, different countries, and different languages. And yet, all of those individuals, because it's God revealing himself to them, are congruent in the story that they're giving. Hence, the Bible that we have. The next thing I want to show you is inspiration. God reveals himself to us, but also in revealing himself to us, the individuals that are writing down, okay, God said this, God did this, this happened, I saw Jesus, right? We got to get this down. We got to write this down so it can go forth, are inspired by God. Inspiration is a supernatural influence that fits those who come under it to receive divine truths and communicate them to others. Why is this important? When the individuals or the authors of each piece of the Bible are writing, they are writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They're not writing on a whim. They're not just making something up. They're not just saying, oh, I need to figure out something today and I'm gonna go down and I'm gonna write something that sounds good. Each of them has been carried along by the influence of God to write down how God has revealed himself to mankind. So God is through that whole process. Now, the next question in a lot of people's mind is this. Great, so God reveals himself to us. You're telling me that the guys or the people that were writing the scriptures were under the influence of God. But it's 2023, right? How do I know that what was given to them way back in the day is actually what I'm reading today. Anybody have that question? We've talked about it before. We talk about the telephone game. We're not gonna play it today, but I guarantee you if I had a statement this morning and I went and whispered it over to Keith, the chances of this true exact statement that I give getting all the way back to the sound booth and Corey back there telling it truthfully to me would probably be pretty slim. Why? A, maybe we all have the same heart. We're all sitting there saying, you know, I really want to truthfully do the best I can to have the same words that Trevor has. But some of us might not hear the words correctly. And so even though we have the right heart, we accidentally say the wrong word. Now, some of you like me back in the day might be sitting there saying, I can't wait till it gets to me 
because the second it gets to me, I'm going to change it entirely. I can't wait, and I can't wait to see what comes from it. How do we know somebody didn't do that? How do we know that God didn't painstakingly reveal himself in the right way, but somewhere in where God was revealing himself to today, somebody didn't come in and say, I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it different. And that is now what we're reading. Those are all questions that people are asking. And so today, we're going to be looking at the authenticity of Scripture. And the first thing that I want to show you is simply this. With prophecy, we have confidence the statements recorded in the Bible are God's revelation to us. So the first aspect that is unique about the Bible is prophecy. That is such a core piece to us understanding the reality that this is God's word. A couple quick things here. Uh, Dr. Robert Lewis says this, that the biblical writers frequently demonstrated their credibility as men possessing God's revelations by prophesying events and, in many cases, intimate details of those events over which they themselves had no control. I want to pause on that. These are individuals that are saying, this is what's going to happen in the future. Okay? And then they go, and they don't say something as simple as, you know, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It, it might not, but chances of the sun rising tomorrow are pretty true. We know the sun exists. We know it has. They say something to the extent of, a child's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he's going to be the savior of the world. And people are looking around and they're going, number one, what is Bethlehem? Number two, even if Bethlehem exists, I mean, if you're going to put the ruler of, and we'll put it in modern context today, the ruler of the United States, why wouldn't you have him born in Washington, D.C.? Why is he going to be born in Panora, Iowa? What's good about him? I love Panora, right? But what's good about Panora? Why would they come from... Panora. Well, that's what God said. And interesting enough, you look and you kind of go, well, I don't even know that the United States exists. And I don't even know about the town of Panora. And then the next thing you know is I don't have any skin in the game. I die. I'm long and gone. My memory is like nothing. But I said so because God told me so. And lo and behold, America pops up on the map the next thing you know, Panora, Iowa exists. And the next thing you know, the ruler of Israel, but in this case, the United States, is born in Panora. Pretty credible, isn't it? So let's look at a couple of prophecies. Now, I've selected a few that are out of the study, but there are multiple prophecies throughout Scripture, which I'll explain in a minute. But I want to show you a couple of things. The first thing is... This prophecy that we're going to talk about was stated in and around 730 B.C., approximately. Okay? When you look back through history, that's about the best date that you can have, give or take you know, maybe a decade or two. And this is what was said. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So he's speaking directly saying, 
to you a ruler is going to come, and they will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So they're talking about essentially the Messiah. It's a clue to the fact that this individual is from ancient times, that they are God. Interesting, right? So here's the thing. Think about this for a minute. If I told you the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl, and we go next year and they lose, which they probably will, and then we go the following year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, how many of you would come back to me after about five or ten years and say, I don't think you're prophetic? I'm not. But you'd begin to doubt, wouldn't you? What about the fact that 730 years went by? Huh? Is this real? Now, the time span in this is also the influence to demonstrate that no one had any skin in the game. After 730 years, if anybody was doing anything political, anything behind the scenes, trying to gain from anything on this, right? There's no gain to be had. There's no collusion in this prophecy. And then lo and behold, okay, this was out of Micah 5.2, the prophecy is fulfilled in 0 to 1 AD. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Panora, right? In Judah, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And then obviously it continues on, interestingly enough, to verse 6, which I didn't put up here. But verse 6 is what? A direct quotation of the prophecy back all the way that we saw in 730 B.C. Holy cow, it came true. Right? Pretty big deal. Now, the next thing that you might look at is say, okay, that's great. How many of you are kind of um, individuals of beginner's luck? Right? You're kind of like, well, that's fine. You know, they just had beginner's luck. I'll even speak to this today. Um, again, you guys are worried about my shooting abilities. And a long time ago in a galaxy far away, Gary took me out to go shooting. We shot his pistol. And I think Gary's out in the, in the, li uh, the um, lobby. He'll attest to it. But I nailed it. We went and we shot. And I think I went 10 for 10. And I mean, I was like, whoop, right? I'll be honest. That was beginner's luck. I don't think I could repeat it. Here's the thing I want to talk to you about with the scriptures. One time is pretty amazing. But it's not just once. It's over and over and over again. And I want to show you through another couple of prophecies how real God's word is. The next one, this prophecy was stated somewhere between. It gets a little bit more challenging because it's out of uh, the Pentateuch. 1520 to 1400 BC, okay? We know that for sure. We can't just pin the exact date down. Don't sweat that, but watch what it says. It says, I will turn your cities into ruins. He's speaking specifically to the people of God and the nation of Israel. 
and I will lay waste to your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing or roaming of your offerings. I will lay waste to the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your, sorry, your cities will be laid in ruins. It's out of Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 31 through 33. Okay? Why am I bringing this up? The first prophecy, even though it's unique, is what we would call intra-biblical. Okay? I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a person that's going to be the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus, but it's still scriptural. Very good, very important, very unique. But watch this. This one says there's going to be an actual event in history, right, that we can document, even though Jesus has been documented outside of the Bible, with proof, historically, that it occurred. That's why this prophecy is so important. Guess what? Israel, you guys are going to be destroyed. You're going to be laid waste. You're no longer going to exist as a nation. And I, God, am going to do that. And then we go, not just 730 years, but we go over at least 1,400 years. How many of you would be looking and going, yeah, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. This isn't going to happen. There's no way it's going to occur. And then lo and behold, this prophecy we know through history was fulfilled in 70 AD when Israel was completely destroyed as a nation in 70 AD by the legions of Rome. We can prove that. We have archaeological evidence and extra-biblical texts that say this happened. Its inhibitants were scattered among the nations of the world for almost 2,000 years. That gets really interesting. So the other uniqueness aspect of the Bible is it affects history. It truly is affecting what goes on in the world. So the last one is simply this. Now there is no Israel. And Israel's gone. But watch this prophecy. This prophecy was stated in and around 755 BC, give or take a few years. And this is what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. I will do this. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. So not only am I going to take them away, which happens, but I will bring them back. I will restore them and I will make them a nation again. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land. Okay? I will give Israel back their ground. And never again to be uprooted from the land that I had given them. This is prophesied in Amos 9, 13 through 15. So interestingly enough, not only do we see a prophecy over at least 1,400 years old where God says, I'm going to remove the nation of Israel from its land and destroy their cities, but we see a prophecy of God that says, I will bring them back and reestablish them as a nation. Now, here's what's amazing about this. This was 755 BC. 
we see the nation of Israel destroyed in AD 70. It's completely eradicated from the maps, and we don't see the nation of Israel at all. And then what happens? We go through World War I, we go through the Great Depression, and we go through World War II. Some of you probably remember those times. Not a good time in history, is it? What's going on, God? What's happening? The world seems to be coming to an end. Where are you and what are you doing? God says, I'm doing exactly what I said. I am bringing about my kingdom. And so interestingly enough, we end World War II, we finalize everything that's going on, and this little blip on the radar pops back up. On May 14, 1948, true event in history, we have it documented, we know that it's true. Israel returned to the land of Palestine, established as a nation again after nearly 2,000 years of dispersion. Why is this important? Brothers and sisters, friends that are gathered here this morning, the uniqueness of the Bible is that we have prophetic events that have been stated without any influence that have occurred in the manner that they have been spoken about. And we have historical evidence to prove that. That makes the Bible unique. The final thing that I want to encourage you in is simply this. When we look at some of the other prophecies, right? Jesus will return to collect his bride, the church. How many of us get a little nervous about that? Is he really going to come? Is he really going to come and take us to his kingdom? Heck yeah, he is. Because we know that if this is what happened before and God did it, and he did it in the detail and the manner that he said it would, and we know historically that it's true, time and time and time again, why wouldn't God do what he's already said? And that brings great hope and joy to our life. So the one thing that I want to encourage you, the first aspect that we look about in Scripture is the uniqueness of prophecy in the Bible, as well as how it can be accounted to throughout history, as well as credible events. Now, that's great, right? So the next question that you have is, okay, wonderful, it's good to hear, but in the back of your minds, how do I know that there isn't a Trevor sitting in the congregation today that is going to change what was originally stated because he wants to do something different? So what God said back during this time hasn't been changed or coerced or is different, and I'm missing really who God is because there's a lot of time between when God said these things and 2023. Anybody have that question? That's the next aspect that I want to encourage you in this morning. With textual criticism, and I'll explain that in a minute, we can be assured that what is written in the Bible is authentic, it is what God said, and it is accurate. Two different things, right? It's authentic, we truly have what he had said, but also, it's not that we did our best to have him say what he said, and unfortunately, we only have about 30 or 20% accuracy. No. What was said is authentic, and what we have is accurate, even to today. And I want to demonstrate that to you. 
Textual criticism is essentially a scholarly work where individuals look at evidence of documents over a period of time. And so the simplest way to put it is this. If I were to say something here 100 years ago, and we were to look today at how accurate it is, we want to see truthfully how what was said is today. Textual criticism, what it does is it says, Trevor said it here. We have a document here a year later that records what was said. And it's accurate to what was originally stated. We have a document here five years later that is the same or very, very close to what Trevor said here. We have a document here that says, etc. Here, here, and here. The more accurate is the more attestations, okay, the more times that there are documents that are the same, as well as their accuracy in what is stated. Make sense? We have a lot of attestations, and all of those attestations are saying the same thing. That's essentially, in a nutshell, the scholarly work of textual criticism. So, here's what's interesting. The science of textual criticism has given us 100% certainty that what we have in our Bibles today is the original Vox meaning, okay? Number one, we can be 100% certain that what we have in our Bibles is the original Vox, what God meant. Somebody didn't change it. They didn't change what he was saying. But number two, and over 90% accurate for the Old Testament, meaning that this is what was originally said, and what was originally said in the Old Testament as we have it today is 98% accurate. That's pretty darn good. Now, I know you guys are all sweating. What about that 2%? Okay, hang on just a minute. Now, the next thing is, let's take the New Testament. It's 98% accurate for the Old Testament and it's 99.5% accurate for the New. 0.5% is in, inaccurate. Oh my gosh, right? 2% of the Old Testament, right? 5% of the New, or 0.5% of the New. What if there's something in there that says that Jesus really wasn't God? Well, let's look at what these inaccuracies are. The differences are mostly, okay, these inaccuracies are mostly in spelling. So for example, my name is Trevor Nunn, N-U-N-N, two N's. Well, an inaccuracy in the Bible would be if somebody wrote it down that Trevor Nunn was N-U-N or N-U-N-N-N-N. Still Trevor Nunn. We still do know I am. It's just a minor spelling. How many of you are great spellers? How many of you want a little bit of grace in spelling? How many of you ever read that thing, okay, where if we can decipher the beginning and the last letter and whatever's in the middle, it doesn't matter, we can still read? Here's my point. Can we give a little grace? That's an error. It happens. And that's only 2% or 0.5%. The next one is this. It's an error in grammar. Anybody good at grammar? 
shoot, I forgot a comma. Now, I'm not saying it's not important, okay? Grammar is important, especially for some of the English teachers out there. I don't want them getting mad at me. But it's a small error. They forgot, they forgot a comma, they forgot a period, okay? And we can go back and we can look and, they, and we can say, all right, the period was here, it was here, it was here, it was here, it was here. Oops, it wasn't there, but it was here, 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 it was here. This one doesn't have a period. But if it's a period all the way through, most likely the one that doesn't have a period is the error. Okay? That's the inaccuracy. Make sense? You guys like that? You want me to jump a period here? <laughs> I saw you guys. I'm with you. I'm tracking. Okay? Um, they're accidental word insertions or deletions. Okay? That's a little concerning. But what's happening is, in essentially the statement that's there, and I'll just give an example, Trevor Nunn went to the store to buy food. Trevor Nunn bought a banana. Right? The error is Trevor Nunn went to the store to buy food. He bought a banana. That's the kind of error that we're talking about. Still me. I still went to the store and I still bought a banana. That's kind of the errors that are there. Now why is this so important? Because so many people are trying to say, how can we trust the Bible because it's so old? How do we know that it's real? Textual criticism is a scholarly and scientific way of demonstrating the reality that is there. Now, the next thing, you say, well, how do we know this? Okay. This is probably the coolest thing that happened in modern history. Okay? I'm going to read this to you, but I'm going to also tell the story briefly. Bedouin shepherd, kid, out playing, basically doing his thing, wanders off, starts throwing rocks up into caves, okay? He's just doing his thing. He's like, oh, you know, how many ever are you out playing? You start throwing rocks at things. What about this? He throws rocks into a cave, and the next thing you know, he hears this like, plink, and something breaks. And he's like, there's something in there. What if you were the kid who was throwing rocks and you had this discovery? True event, and this is what I'm going to explain to you. In the middle of the 20th century, we saw the greatest manuscript discovery in modern times. In 1947, a young Bedouin shepherd stumbled upon a cave south of Jericho containing many leather scrolls of Hebrew and Aramaic writing and about 600 fragmentary inscriptions. This is true, this is um, archeological discovery, it's documented in history, okay? This isn't a myth. Great excitement prevailed in the archeological world. In 1952, new caves containing fragments of later scrolls in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic were found. Now, any of you that know the Bible, that should excite you because what is the Bible written in? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So, as we're reading this, our eyes should be getting excited. These and other startling manuscript discoveries have been followed by news of additional manuscripts found later in the caves known as the Dead Sea area. 
This discovery, essentially in scholarly work, has been called the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if ever you hear of anybody talking about the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, this is exactly what they're talking about. Why should we care? Why is this important? Well, we're going to see this. The Dead Sea Cave manuscripts contain material partly biblical and partly intertestamental. Okay? So they're just being real. They're being authentic. What did we find in these caves? We found material that was truly biblical, and we found material that was intertestamental, material that was written in between the Old and the New Testament. That's what we uncovered here. Now, the biblical includes two scrolls of Isaiah, one complete and most of the first two chapters of Habakkuk and fragments from all of the Old Testament books except Esther. Think about this for a minute. They found an entire scroll of Isaiah. They found fragments of every book in the Bible minus Esther as well as they found the two first chapters of Habakkuk. Pretty cool. Now you're like, why is this important? Well, we're going to discover this. Large number of fragmentary manuscripts have been recovered from the Pentateuchal books, okay, the first five books of the Bible, and Isaiah, as well as fragments of Psalms, Jeremiah, and Daniel, which are numerous. So they found these. Why is this a big deal? The reason that it's a big deal is this. Prior to this discovery, historically speaking, the earliest copy of the Bible that we had on hand, that we could go back to, was 900 AD. Okay, think about it. it was, it's the Masoretic texts. True, you can ask any scholar, if you wanted them to go back and say, we're in 2023 now. Obviously, it would be before that. We're in 1935. And we want to look back, and we want to see how far can we trace the Bible back accurately. We can do it to A.D. 900. Now, I'm not the sharpest kid in the class, but I can tell you this. I know the Bible was written in and around, what, 1400 B.C. I know Jesus said to have lived, what, in A.D. 0. That's 900 years even to when Jesus comes. There's a lot of, what, telephone game that occurred, could have occurred in those 900 years. This is why the Dead Sea Scrolls were so important. Simply stated, what did the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls do? Prior to the discovery in 1947 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic Hebrew Bible was the basis for all recent translations of the Old Testament, and its earliest copy did, no, did not go back any earlier than 900 AD, as I said. The Hebrew text of Isaiah found at the Dead Sea dated as early as 125 to 150 BC. So it basically jumped us back over a thousand years. Okay, it took that gap back. And in it, it closed the gap of accuracy. When they looked at that entire scroll of Isaiah and recognized that it was easily, because it was written the manner that it was, through archaeological scientific evidence, dated to 
125 or 100 BC, and they said, what was written here, okay? And they looked at the Masoretic text that was a thousand years old, or newer, and they said, what is written here? There was no difference. That's huge. That's huge. And that's just the text of Isaiah. They also look at fragments. Now, what I want to talk about is simply this. What is a fragment, all right? I'm not going to do this, but take your Bible and tear out a page, right? That's a fragment. It's not complete. But what they did is as they started to look at the, compa the, the, the compa compilation, that's the word, of these fragments, they began to realize that even the fragments began to attest to the Masoretic text and that they were accurate. So no, they didn't have the whole scroll of Isaiah, but they started to look and they started to say, this fragment matches that, this fragment matches that, this fragment matches that, this fragment matches that. And so through the fragment evidence that was so overwhelming, recognizing, no, we don't have the whole Bible, but if Isaiah is accurate and these fragments are accurate, it's pretty darn safe to assume this text is accurate. So the Dead Sea Scrolls take us all the way back to that reality. Now, I'm gonna go, this is me, I'm getting excited. Um, uh, P-52, anybody here P-52? It's not the B-52s, okay? It's not the plane, but Papyri 52, okay? Papyri 52 is a manuscript of the text of John and it is like the quintessential archetype of textual criticism. P52 is like the Super Bowl of fragments. And it is a script of the text of John that is dated literally to within 25 years of when John was written. It's not everything, I'll be honest. It's not the whole Gospel of John, it's just a portion. But that script can be dated to 25 years of when John was thought to be written, and when they look at that script, it is entirely accurate to what we have today. Again, proof of the reality of the Bible. So, the next thing that I wanna tell you is this. We have textual criticism. Is the text accurate? But then also there is this thing known as textual attestation, right? It's one thing to have one text say the same thing. Okay, get that? It's a whole nother thing to have multiple texts over an extended period of time say the same thing accurately. That's attestation. That's the difference. I'm like sweating, I'm getting so excited about this. Okay, um, I just wanna show this to you. All right, here's what I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna just say this right out. How many of you love the classics? Plato, Aristotle, Homer, right? Anybody love those? Nobody? No classical writers? We've got a couple? If you do, the bottom line is this, okay? If someone, after seeing this, says, I cannot trust that the Bible is true, lovingly, okay, don't put yourself above them, you can turn to them and say, then you have no proof, literally no proof, to tell me that any of the classical writers of what you're seeing today are real. And here's why. Plato, okay, his tetralogies were written between 427 and 347 BC. Okay, so we're using 
who he was and when he wrote with textual criticism and attestation. The earliest copy, now this has changed, okay? This was um, taken out of the study. This was written by Josh McDowell back in 1979. I have some updated numbers. I'll give those to you, okay, on Wednesday. I'm not giving them to you today as an enticement to come to Wednesday night, okay? But this was true. The earliest copy at that date was 900 AD. So the time gap, like we said before, of when it was written and the earliest copy that they had is a thousand years. That's a big time gap. And the number of copies that they had on hand were nine. Okay? So I'm not a betting man, but how many of you, if I were to say, where do you want to place your money on the accuracy of these texts, would bet on this one? Anybody? Okay, you guys are smart. Now, the next one, Aristotle. Aristotle was written between 384 and 322 BC. The earliest copy on record was 1100 AD, so a time gap of 1400 years. Bigger gap, but there are 49 copies. So, a few more copies. How many of you would bet that what was written by Aristotle is what we have today? A couple of people, maybe. All right? Homer's Iliad. Right? We love Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. I mentioned this last week. We love to read it and we love to say, this is what Homer said. Trust me on it. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're telling me, trust me on what Homer said is real, then you need to be saying, trust me that what the Bible says is real. Because watch what this is. Homer's Iliad was written between 902 and 900 BC, and the earliest copy was in 400 BC. Better time gap, only 500 years. So it's a good one to bet on. We only have a 500 gap of the earliest copy to when it was written. And we have 643 written attestations of Homer. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Here's what I want to tell you. Outside of the Bible, Homer's Iliad, in this aspect, is the most attested to and earliest document. It's number two in the textual criticism and textual attestation world. Where's the Bible? Watch this. You'd think maybe, does the Bible come in just right ahead, right? Just right... Maybe it's only they've got a gap of 499 years and maybe they've got like 700 attestations. The New Testament, we're just talking the New Testament, it was written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copy, P52, like I said before, dates confidently to 125 AD, possibly a little bit earlier. That's why I said you know, 20 to 25 years. We're only talking 20 to 25 years of history. Very, very accurate. So the time gap is small, but also the attestation to the documentation is real. There are over 24,000, I believe now that number is like 25 or 26,000, attestations to the accuracy of the New Testament. Let me give you a comparison. I said this before, and there's a graph that I'll show you later. Most of classical writers, if you were to take their manuscripts and you were to say that their full works are about two inches thick, okay? So we're talking Aristotle, Plato, Plato, Homer, any ancient writer. I'm writing my manuscript. My manuscript is two inches thick. If you were to lay what we have on them high, the average writer would get to four feet. Okay? I'm 5'8", five, 5'9", five, on good days. That's about here. If you were to lay the textual attestation for the New Testament... How high would it be? 
5,280 feet, one mile high. The Bible blows any text away. And that is why, lovingly, I can come to you and say, if you're going to say that the classics are real, yet deny the authenticity of the Bible, you cannot scientifically and scholarly tell me that you can trust the classics, period. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends that are gathered here today, that is why we can trust what we have in the Bible. That is why the Bible is unique. Take home truth today, I've said it before, I just wanna leave this with you, is this, that the Bible is the revealed, inspired word of God and it has been authenticated by prophecy, textual criticism, and textual attestation. The reason that I give this to you is A, to bolster your confidence, not your ego, please hear me, bolster your confidence that when you go to people and tell them about Jesus Christ, you're not telling them about a myth, a fable, or one book among many. You are telling them about God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have proof that it is real and that it is accurate. And what is said in the scriptures today is what God said thousands of years ago. It hasn't changed, it isn't different, there isn't a hidden gospel, there isn't more to know. You want to know God, you want to know who you are and your need of God, you want to know how to get to God, you want to know who you are once you come to God, you go right here. And you don't need to go anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and I, I get it, I'm, I know that I get excited about this. But Father, um, we're grateful for it. We're grateful for the fact that we can look and know that when we look at the scriptures, we're not looking at something that may or may not be true. We're not looking at something that we have no understanding of how it got here. We're not looking at something that, well, maybe it got here, but how do we know that it's accurate? Father, we have all of these pieces that demonstrate that what we have is real. Father, also we recognize that even in the inaccuracies, those small inaccuracies are so minimal that they're really inconsequential. So that we can live with the confidence that what was meant by God is being said in what is written in scripture today. And so Father, the more important part of that is, if that's the case, then help us not to change what's written, but help us to call you Lord and submit ourselves to your holy word. We thank you, we love you, we pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.